Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a pop culture podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. It has been an exceedingly long time since we recorded an episode, which I think I'm going to have to first apologize for, and then blame on the slings and arrows of Outrageous Fortune, aka junior of college. But we are back and ready for a summer of podcasting, which I'm very excited for. Before we dive into the actual topic of this episode, is there anything that you've been into or up to lately that you want to highlight to our listeners, Pi? Well, like you said, it's been a really long time since we last recorded an episode because first I was finishing my semester and then you were finishing your semester and then I was traveling and then you were traveling. So like it's been a while and since the last time we recorded, I have consumed so much media that we could probably sit here and talk for a whole episode's length just about that. But because we're not going to do that, I will pick a few select choices of things that I really enjoyed in the last couple of months. One is the novel A River Enchanted by Rebecca Ross, which I actually started reading during my final exams at college, and it was so good that I would just like carry it around and read it whenever I had a spare moment and I wasn't working on an essay because it was just like that good and so up my alley. It's an adult fantasy novel about a rather grouchy bard who returns home to the enchanted island that he left long ago as a child in order to help the young heir to the island who also was his rival as a kid, it's a fun dynamic, helped solve the mystery of some disappearing children. And it had a lot of things that I thought were really cool. It has a setting that's basically a character in itself. It has music magic. It has a relationship that progresses from childhood enemies to reluctant allies, to friends, to lovers. It has twisty politics and beautiful writing. And it was just like a really good time. I found myself reading it and it kind of helped me get through finals a little bit because I had something fun to do that wasn't just revising my papers. After I finished my semester, I also saw the really good movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which people have definitely been talking about. So I'm definitely not the first person to recommend this, but it's a movie about a woman who learns that she has to save the multiverse from impending destruction. And it's a big, loud, weird, funny movie, but it's also at its heart kind of about the immigrant experience and the diaspora experience and family relationships and the, the decision to love in the face of the overwhelming weirdness of the universe. And as a lover, of multiverse media. This just absolutely blew my mind and rearranged my brain chemistry and I'll be thinking about it for a long time. Then I read the book Summer Suns by Lee Mandelo, which is a Southern Gothic novel about a grad student who is grieving the death of his best friend slash guy that he had a super codependent relationship with while being haunted by said best friend's ghost and trying to kind of uncover the secrets behind his friend's death. And it had like this amazing sweltering southern gothic atmosphere full of secrets and characters who can't or won't admit things and it was just like a really interesting exploration of grief and sexuality and coming of age and it's going to live in my head for a while I think. And then lastly I reread an old favorite which is the graphic novel Nimona by N.D. Stevenson which is a really fun and cute but also deeply emotional and eventually emotionally devastating graphic novel about Nimona, a shape-shifting girl who becomes a sidekick to a villain called Ballister Blackheart and tries to help him, you know, orchestrate the downfall of the kingdom. And then eventually things get very complicated and emotional, but it's really funny. 
It also has so much emotion packed into it. I first read it when I was in high school and loved it, and I still love it. I'm really anticipating the movie coming out next year, so I'm glad I finally reread it. And that is a few choice things that I've enjoyed since we recorded our last episode. Have you been enjoying anything lately, Lulu? Well, I finished my semester a lot later than you, so I've just kind of been hanging around and decompressing for the past week, but I do have some nice stuff that I like to highlight. And one of them is the TV show Heartstopper. It was a really cute romance slash coming of age TV show that's about two boys falling in love at a British all boys school. It's very sweet. It's based off of a graphic novel series that I've also read. And they do these like fun little animated aspects that are sort of an homage to the graphic novel origin. I just thought it was really cute. It's very like lighthearted for the most part, even though it does deal with some stuff like bullying. Uh, I just thought it was very cute. It was like a nice watch when I was busy working on the finals grind. And once I got home, I had some more time to read stuff that wasn't just my academic texts. So I read From Dust to Flame by Rebecca Podos, which is a really great contemporary fantasy novel inspired by Jewish folklore and history. It's about a girl named Hannah who wakes up on her 17th birthday and looks in the mirror and sees that she has suddenly grown snake eyes overnight and is like, whoa, that's pretty weird. Maybe my mom's a strange family that she never talks to anymore has answers and goes to kind of hunt down what secrets her family has been hiding that might relate to her weird recent transformation. It's really interesting. It's kind of an exploration of generational trauma and family and discovering yourself. It was also really cool to read a book that draws on Jewish folklore. So there was like golems and demons. It's not really something I know much about. So it was really interesting to read. I also just finished reading The 30 Names of Night by Zane Jukadar, which was fantastic. It's, I would describe it as literary fiction with like a little bit of magic in that there's a ghost, but it's not like a very magical story. It's about a young transgender Syrian American artist grieving the death of his mother, but also searching for this semi-mythical bird that she believed in and thought nested somewhere in New York City. It's a really interesting exploration of grief and gender identity and history and looking for mirrors of yourself in history. It's the kind of thing that I like don't want to explain too much because I just want people to go read it, but it was really gorgeous and lyrical and emotional and I would highly recommend it. Sadly, we are not here to talk about The 30 Names of Night, even though it's really good and I could say incoherent things about it for the next hour. So we probably should actually turn to the real topic of this episode, which is historical books about wizards, which might seem like a paradox, but once you listen to this episode, you will see that that is in fact a genre. See, we on Never the Twins Shall Meet like wizards, and we also like history. So if you write a historical fantasy book about wizards, we are basically guaranteed to like it. So we're going to talk about two of our favorite ones that we've read recently and kind of discuss the similarities and differences and also nerd out about history a bit, probably. The two books that we're going to be talking about are A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsk, and Sorcerer of the Crown by Zen Cho. So A Marvelous Light is an adult fantasy novel that is set in Edwardian era England. For those who are not history nerds like myself, that's like roughly from the beginning of the 20th century to the start of World War One. It's not a super long period of time, but it's an interesting one to explore. And A Marvelous Light follows Robin Blythe, a minor English aristocrat and civil servant who is accidentally inducted into the world of magic through a bureaucratic mistake and is plunged into a broader magical conspiracy. Along the way, he joins forces with Edwin Corsi, a bookish magician with very little magic who is also extremely grouchy. 
And after Robin is introduced to the world of magic, it turns out there are some mysterious bad guys after some information that the guy who previously held Robin's position as the liaison between the magical and regular world may have been hiding. And these guys think that Robin also knows that information. I feel so bad for Robin. He gets this job mostly because of a clerical error and then bam, he's immediately kidnapped and threatened over stuff he doesn't understand in the slightest. So Edwin and Robin have to attempt to break a curse that was put on Robin and find out what happened to Robin's predecessor, who may have been murdered, while also battling their growing feelings for each other and dealing with a really terrible house party. I think genre-wise, I would describe this book as a mashup of romance, historical fiction, fantasy, and mystery. Because like you said, it's set in Edwardian England. I think it's set in 1908 specifically, but it also features this world of magicians who hide in plain sight. <laughs> you can also tell that it's British because Marvelous is spelled with two L's, which seems innately wrong to my American sense of spelling. Actually, for a few weeks after I read this book, I honestly did keep accidentally spelling it Marvelous with two L's and not Marvelous with one L. And then my computer spell check would get really confused. It has underlined every single instance of the word Marvelous in this document, for instance, and I can't seem to get it to stop doing that. So there's also some mystery and murder alongside the developing romance between Edwin and Robin, which is namely, what happened to Robin's predecessor? What secrets was he hiding? And who was after him? The book also has quite a strong romantic subplot, and I would say it draws very heavily on the pacing and character-focused style of romance novels. So it's kind of an interesting experiment in combining genres that I thought paid off pretty well. Yeah, I also thought it paid off pretty well. If you want like a simple pitch for the book, it's kind of like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Doral, but you make it gay because magic is present in the world of A Marvelous Light, but it hasn't particularly impacted history. This is basically Edwardian England exactly as it existed in our real history, except for the secret society of magicians that exist like under the surface of everything. So like it's a very recognizable world. There are like these secrets in the shadows. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is slightly different in that magic is like something that was once commonly accepted that has now kind of been forgotten, but they have kind of the similar idea of magic exists but it hasn't fundamentally changed our society it's just slightly altered the way that people interact with things so I will not go on a Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell tangent although I love that book I will just say that like Lulu said this is kind of a mashup of several different genres but I think it works pretty well and it just pulled them off in a very convincing way and I, I don't think it feels like awkwardly pulled together the historical aspect feels quite well meshed with the romance aspect the magic aspect fits well with the romance etc. Actually, before we go any further, I have a very terrible confession to make, which is that for someone who loves fantasy books, I have never actually read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I saw the TV show without reading the book, so you can all boo me off the podcast. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just very long and I've never had time. Boo. (laughs) Although I was the one who made you watch the TV show and I was too impatient to make you wait to read the book. So that is also kind of my fault. If you don't know anything about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, it is like a semi-recent-ish that it came out in this century fantasy novel that kind of reinterprets all of British history through the lens of like, what if there was magic? I did mostly enjoy the TV show from what I remember, and I keep being like, maybe someday I'll read the book, but I've been doing that for about seven years now, so I don't know if that'll happen. Lest I be accused of being a bad history fan, I do have to point out that Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is set in the Regency period, so like the 1810s, and A Marvelous Light is set 
about a century later, but they have kind of similar ideas of like the gentleman doing magic and the magic has not like fundamentally altered the course of English history. So I just thought I'd bring that up because it's quite a well-known book. I really enjoy historical fantasies in general. I really like reading about the way that magic meshes with real life history and seeing how the author has either changed history or not changed it and how magic is either commonplace or in the case of this book, not. So it's just like a fun genre mashup if you like a little bit of magic, but you also like to know real details about history. Yeah, I just think it's a very fun genre, or really it's like a sub-genre of fantasy, I guess. We also talked about historical fantasy novels in our Black History Month episode, which is, I think, episode 21. So you can probably tell if you listen to other episodes of this podcast that we really enjoy that like specific little slice of fantasy books. You recommended A Marvelous Light for this podcast, and because I've enjoyed historical fantasy, and I also enjoy murder mysteries with a little bit of magic, and I've read the odd historical romance novel, I was down for kind of like a genre mashup of all of those kind of stuff. Um, also, I think the cover is nice, and I will admit to just being drawn in by the cover, which is like very nice and appealing. Yeah, it's a nice cover. It's very bright and kind of stylized. I think it's supposed to be based off of Edwardian era wallpaper because there are like multiple conversations about wallpaper in this novel. So that's kind of like a theme. Right. So like I said earlier, it's set in Edwardian England with the addition of some hidden magic, which I think is a thing across the world. Like they mentioned magical communities in India, but it's generally kept secret within the magical communities. And there seem to be mostly magical humans with the jury largely being out on non-human supernatural creatures, I think, except like a very brief mention of fairies. Yeah, no, there are fairies. I mentioned the fairies. The fairies play like a very brief like background role, get mentioned a bit in the first book, but this is part of a trilogy and I think they'll end up becoming much more important in the sequels. But I don't think there are like werewolves or vampires. It just seems to be more like humans doing magic with like a little bit of like folklore in the background. We have not discussed Harry Potter on this podcast in the past. Nor will we. Yeah, nor will we, largely because J.K. Rowling has completely lost my respect as a human being. But I feel like if you like the feeling of the kind of wizarding world stuff from Harry Potter, I think you probably like the magic in a marvelous light. It's also interesting to me that this is a story where magic is hidden and the main characters are gay men who have to hide their sexualities from the world in general. Like, I just feel like there's interesting contrasts and parallels there about like hiding aspects of yourself and how Edwin is someone who has to hide his magic from a larger community and then hide his sexuality from the even smaller community of magical people. I don't really have like a fully formed thought there because it just came to me, but I just think those parallels are kind of interesting. I mean, I do think that's definitely like part of the book because Edwin and Robin originally don't get along very well because Robin is just like this like very easygoing, like cheerful, nice guy who has no idea that magic existed before he got involved because of a clerical error. And Edwin is like this much more grouchy, like introverted, private character who does know about magic, but they both are gay. And so they end up kind of finding this common ground because they both have aspects of their lives that they are forced to hide from a lot of other people. So even if Robin is like, wow, Edwin is so rude. And Edwin is like, wow, Robin is so annoying. They both kind of have like this similar idea of like, oh, you also have to hide a part of yourself, like even in this like fantastical world of magic. So I think that actually does play kind of like an interesting role in getting the characters to become more united in the novel. Mm, Yeah, because they understand each other on a level that other people in their lives don't necessarily understand each other. And I think that is just interesting to parallel with the fact that this is 
a fantasy novel where magic is hidden from other people who don't have magic. So yeah, basically the premise of this book is like, what if there was magical bureaucracy and there was a liaison between the non-magical world and the magical world and he fell in love with a wizard. Yeah, I think in terms of the romance, it reminded me a lot of historical novels, of historical romances, specifically by authors like K.J. Charles, who also writes historical novels about gay people like existing in history and kind of like engages with like what would it actually be like to have a gay romance back then and like what kind of communities would people have and like what kind of thoughts should they have about their sexuality so kj charles but like with more magic than is in the books by her that i have read at least yeah i think it did, ha- did have a bit of kj charles vibes though i haven't really read in-depth books by her robin like we mentioned is aristocratic but his family is really down on money after his parents death and he works in civil service because of that. But then due to a bureaucratic error, he accidentally learns of the existence of magic, which is a really funny concept to me. I really like it when magic gets paperworked, when you apply mundane stuff to something that seems like it should be very hard to pin down. It's just extremely funny to me. Oh yeah, in real life, I hate paperwork, but when fictional characters have to fill out paperwork, this is delightful, and I love watching them be tormented by it. Like, There's this great montage in the movie Jupiter Ascending, which I maintain is a cinematic classic in which the main characters are desperately trying to fill out paperwork in order to save the world. And I think it's really funny. It's also funny that Robin ends up in this position entirely by accident because the first scene of the book is him arriving to his new job and everyone there assumes that he has already been briefed on the existence of magic. And he's just like incredibly freaked out and confused. And is like, what is going on? Like, what's all, what's all this magic that I'm seeing? This is like, am I hallucinating? But it's like, oh my God, you mean they really forgot to brief me? And he's like, I have no idea what's happening. And it's just very funny. It was, poor Robin. In contrast, Edwin is from a magical family and grew up knowing stuff about magic, but he has very little actual magic himself, and he's more into research, so he's involved in the bureaucracy side of the magical world. He ends up having to explain lots of magic stuff to Robin, uh, and is kind of like, oh no, now I'm stuck with trying to help this rich jock guy, this is terrible, because Edwin is like a quiet nerd who likes hanging out in libraries, and Robin is like a rowdy guy who rose and has bros. Um, If they had frats in 1908 England, I assume he would have been in a frat in college kind of guy, but then they fall in love. They do, and it's very good. I love a good opposite attract romance when it's done correctly. I also think it's fun that because Edwin has to be the one to explain magic to Robin, you kind of see this funny contrast between how Edwin views his magic and how Robin views Edwin's magic because Robin doesn't know anything about magic. So anything Edwin shows or teaches him, he's like, oh my God, this is cool. This is so amazing. I've never seen this before. This is like blowing my mind. Whereas Edwin is like, meh, like two out of 10. I have some magic, but like I grew up not knowing half much. So I just make myself handy doing paperwork and filing stuff in the library. But like literally anytime Edwin does any magic stuff, Robin is like, sick, this is fantastic. But I do think, I think it's both funny, but it also works really well in their romance because Edwin is a character who we learn has kind of like been devalued by a lot of people in his life because of his lack of magic. Like we meet his siblings who are all kind of awful and they all kind of tease him about the fact that he's not as powerful as they are. And then he's confronted with Robin who's like, wow, this is so cool. Like show me another trick. I love that you can do magic. And Edwin is like, 
affection someone reacting positively towards me I don't know how I feel about this and like then they kind of become closer because of that so it works both as a mechanism for you to learn more about the magic because you've got Robin who has no idea what's going on which means that he gets things explained to him and so the re- and so the author can also explain things to the reader but it also means that they can kind of uh, gradually get this like closer connection because Robin is like genuinely awed by the stuff that Edwin can do and like find some valuable and interesting which are two things that Edwin is not used to people thinking about him so like it has a two-factor thing in the book of how it works I think. It was cute I also thought there was a kind of cool detail about magic in this world which is that it's kind of conducted through hand gestures as opposed to like wands or potions or whatever except because Edwin has very little magic, he can't just do free hand gestures and he has to rely on Cat's cradle string, which is kind of a fun mental image. I just like that little like physical spin on magic. Like there's a part where Edwin uses his magic to like summon snow inside and he has to like do this like elaborate little Cat's cradle thing and like pull the strings taut. And I just thought it was like a neat little detail that I liked and added a bit of a unique spin on magic in this book. Yeah, I thought that was also cool. It feels kind of fresh and unique, but definitely works with how magic is established and working in that world. I also personally am not a huge fan of books where characters have to use stuff like wands because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that like you can just drop your like magic stick and suddenly you can't do anything. And in the case of this world, most people can do some measure of magic without some kind of outside aid. And in the case of Edwin, he just needs the cat's cradle for like an extra boost in order to do something more complex. I think cat's cradle also works as that because like it is kind of magical looking. Like you can do all these like fun little tricks with it that seem sort of magical. So the idea that like doing cat's cradle can summon actual magic is kind of fun and makes sense, I thought. Yeah, like I was at a circus show a couple months ago at my college. And there was like before the show actually started and the audience just kind of filtering in one of the performers going around and like doing interactive cat's cradle. And it was so cool. And it's just like, I admire people who have finger dexterity because I do not have finger dexterity and have trouble doing like the Star Trek finger sal- like salute thingy. So I was just like, wow, imagine having fingers that can do things. <laughs> Maybe if you take up playing the piano or something. But yeah, so the way that magic is explored in this book is really clever and interesting and also is kind of tied to the way two characters like become closer through like their exploration of magic together which I liked. I will confess that Edwin is my favorite of the two characters just because I really like grouchy nerds but I also appreciated Robin because he's just like so laid back and nice. He has like very strong himbo energy which is kind of fun. I think Edwin was also my favorite of the two. I like that he hangs out in the library a lot and basically has his own library organization system because I think a fun detail of this book is that it's set before the like popularization of the Dewey Decimal System. So instead he's come up with his own organization system for the library and I was just like, yeah, go off King, organize your library. I also thought it was fun that there's so many fantasy novels that are like, he's the most powerful wizard of his generation and he must save them all. Whereas Edwin's like, yeah, he's not really that magical, but like, boy, does he have a lot of knowledge in his brain. And I was like, yeah, this is just kind of fun. Mm -hmm. I love it because it means that characters who are not like super powerful and the chosen one have to be smart about how they use their magic. They have to like think about it and come up with clever ways to use things. And like, this is the, and this is how we see Edwin throughout the whole book. Like he came up with the idea of using Cat's Cradle to like support his magic. And when we see him do magic, it's like always very carefully thought out. And he's like thought a really long time about the best way to do things, which is just like 
a little bit more fun than a character who's like instantly super powerful and good at everything because it kind of feels like there isn't any stakes or way for a character to grow and so that is why I liked him uh to confess again another thing it did take me a little bit longer to grow on Robin because his problem at the beginning is my family used to be rich and now we are not as rich and I think I remember being like play me the world's tiniest violin Robin because sometimes I read books about rich people and I'm like I don't care about your problems but I he grew on me I think He's very well-meaning and he loves his sister and he does genuinely like want to help Edwin and he just doesn't know how any of this magic stuff works at the start. So I think he did grow on me eventually and I think there was sort of a more complex thing, but it was sort of funny. Like, I guess I eat my words now. I think I remember texting you like, wow, Robin, I really don't care about your family pity party. And then by the end, <laughs> I'm like, hey, never mind. I'm, I'm sorry I said that about you, Robin. <laughs> To be fair, like the problem of like, my family isn't as rich as we used to be, and now we can't hire all the butlers and I must get a job is perhaps not as relatable to people who are not landed aristocracy, but it does kind of dig a bit more into like Robin's family life and the fact that his parents who are dead cared like way more about going to parties and actually raising him and his sister, which is like why he like wants to be nice to everyone and protect them. So like eventually I felt more for him, but originally I was just like, wow, you have to work a nine to five. This is awful. And certainly nothing, not something that everyone has to deal with. I know it was a little funny. Like I wouldn't mind being a wizard bureaucrat. That's probably more interesting than being a regular bureaucrat. Yeah, exactly. Robin's like, oh my god, I can't believe I have to do a paperwork job. And I'm like, so do so many people. Just like, calm down. So but he did grow on me eventually. And I really enjoyed like the opposites attract, like very different characters who nonetheless like kind of glow- grow closer together and find things to appreciate about the other one. I thought it was very well done. And I did care about their relationship a lot. So we've talked about some of the characters and some of the fantasy stuff. But I would say this also does draw on conventions of historical fiction. Like there is a section of the book where all the characters are stuck together at a big house in the countryside, which totally feels like a convention of historical fiction set in Britain. Like the four day house party where there's like a bunch of rich layabouts hanging about and like drinking tea and like playing croquet or whatever British aristocrats did. I'm not sure. That felt very much like a convention of historical literature like put into a fantasy frame. Because yeah, magical stuff while they're hanging out at the house instead of just like hunting boxes or whatever people back then did. According to the importance of being earnest, they ate a lot of cucumber sandwiches. Yeah, I did listen to an interview with the author on the Fantasy Inn, and she talked about how there is like this super long historical tradition of weekend long house parties in historical Britain. So she wanted to include that. It's also a good way to force your characters into proximity and like make them have to deal with other people because they can't like leave without being rude. Edwin and Robin have to go to a very terrible house party hosted by Edwin's family because they are kind of searching for information about what happened to the previous bureaucrat who held Robin's position and also trying to juggle the fact that Robin has been cursed rather unfortunately and is now occasionally like writhing in pain from magic, which is not really what you want as your introduction to the magical world. So they go off to this house party for a weekend in an attempt to find some answers and end up having a very unpleasant time, largely. This is kind of where the house magic comes in, which was one of the aspects of the book that I thought was really fun. In the world of A Marvelous Light, houses that are owned by magician families for generations can become imbued with magic and eventually become sort of sentient in a loving way, not a creepy way. It's like, 
a haunted house, but it loves you and wants only the best for you. And so families can also sign like a magical oath to the house to kind of make it their land that will like protect them and like keep people that they don't like off of their land. So Penhalic House, which is Edwin's home, is kind of too new to have been built up with enough magic to be significantly imbued with it. But like his family is hoping to live there for several more generations and eventually have like this powerful stronghold that's also like a nice country getaway. I thought that was a kind, a kind of interesting way of tying together magic and also the history of the landed aristocracy because like if you have a place that's like your own land then you can kind of enhance your strength and become like a place for you to like build up your power so I thought that was a kind of cool way of weaving together history and magic and that's also another house that Robin and Edwin go to which is Sutton House and is much older and therefore does have a magical link with the owner and kind of like responds emotionally to people and like can kick people out of the house if they're not wanted. It was just like a fun bit of magic that I enjoyed. I thought it was a cool piece of world building. Yes, I loved Sutton House. Sometimes it's a little evil and it has a hedge maze that tried to kill people at one point, but I still love it. It was just doing its best. I just think it's really fun when setting is like a literal character. And this is probably because when I was a kid, I read books like Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Jones a lot. So I find it's like really fun when the house itself is kind of magic. But I thought it was really fun when they visited Sutton House because it's been inhabited by generation after generation after generation of wizard families. So it's really like grown up and accrued this magic within it that like makes it respond emotionally to the owner. Like at one point, a member of the family dies. and I think like all the lights in the house go out and stuff like that. And I just think it's really fun because I enjoy it when the setting is like a living character, especially when it like loves you and isn't creepy. Like I do enjoy haunted houses, but I am too much of a chicken to consume too much horror because I just become scared easily. So whenever there's like a nice sentient magical house in media, I'm like, it's nice because I get to experience the like, what if the house was magical and sentient sort of stuff, but without the like ghosts and like attempted murder and stuff. So it's a nice middle ground for me who likes it when a building is like a very real character in a story, but also can't, is kind of a chicken and can't stomach that much horror. Yeah, exactly. I like the magic houses because they're the haunted houses. I don't need to have a horror tolerance to deal with them. Although there is the chapter where they get trapped in the murderous hedge maze, which like is doing its best to kill them, which is a little bit scary. But like overall, the idea of Sutton House is that like it's this place that protects its owners and like whoever uh, owns Sutton House and like has become its master is kind of like protected and like the house can like reject people that it doesn't like and I just love, like the idea of a sentient house and like land magic and like the land is alive and protects you was always something that I thought was really cool so I thought it was fun that it turned up in this book. I honestly wouldn't have minded if there was more of Sutton House. I get that it was a murder mystery and like no one was murdered at Sutton House but I think there actually should have just been like 10 more chapters of Robin and Edwin vacationing at Sutton House and like hanging out and talking to it. Uh, we don't need plot we just need magic house you've heard me here first saying this. Exactly. I also wish the Morrissey sisters had been in this book more. I love them. They're side characters who are just like really fun. They One of them works in the same office that Robin and Edwin does. And I like them a lot. There are these uh, Indian British sisters who are just like very smart and no nonsense and kind of funny and really smart. And I enjoyed them a lot. I hope they're in the sequel at some point. I, I kind of get why they weren't in the book more because Robin and Edwin had not let them in on the secret of like the murdered predecessor 
unnecessary stuff, but they were just really fun when they were in the book. So I hope they're in the rest of the series. We will get back to my enjoyment of the Morrissey sisters in a little bit, actually. Yes, we have thoughts about magic and characters of color and historical fantasy, which we'll talk about more when we get to our other book, which is Sorcerer of the Crown by Zen Cho. So I would say this book kind of has the world building of a historical fantasy story, the plot of a mystery, but also the pacing of a romance. And I think by that, I mean that there is magic and the way that magic functions is integral to the story, the way that it's integrated into the historical world building, the way that characters can use it. But the mystery stuff is really what keeps the plot going because we're like, who cursed Robin? What did they want from Robin? What was the information that his predecessor had? And why do they want it so badly? And those are sort of the questions that drive the plot because Edwin and Robin don't know the answers to most of those, even if you, the reader, might have like a little bit more of an inkling than they do because sometimes they're kind of oblivious. But also as a story, it's quite character focused. And I think the budding romance between Edwin and Robin is really the emotional heart of the story because they're both gay men in a time period where that is obviously not the easiest because this is 1908. There's no like actual on-page homophobia in the story, but there's a lot of allusions to the broader world and kind of the secretiveness that their relationships have required in the past. So there's a lot of learning to trust each other before the romance happens, even though there were kind of sparks between them early on. Like Edwin might be like, wow, Robin's a good looking guy. But I cannot let him know that at any cost because that might totally ruin our relationship and also my reputation if this gets out to the wrong people. So there's really a focus on them kind of having to be emotionally vulnerable with each other and learning to trust each other. And also a very funny scene where Robin discovers Edwin's secret library of pornography and they're like Spider-Man pointing meme because Edwin's like, you recognize this is pornography. And Robin's like, I recognize this is pornography. And they're like, wait a minute, connecting the dots. That was a funny scene. I also thought it was a good way to have both of the characters learn that the other one is gay early on in the book without having like a straight character or some other person that doesn't care about either of them out the characters to each other. Because in this case, it's like, a neutral party which is a, a book of pornography and they both are like wait I recognize that you recognize that that means we both know what this is and oh okay so like you are you're gay all right which I thought was a pretty good way of doing it other than like it could have been like a character makes like a homophobic allusion to like Edwin being gay or something but in this case just like ah we both have the same taste in porn I see how it is Well, I would say there is a little bit of that because they run into Edwin's ex, who's not really the nicest. But the fact that they both sort of privately in a more controlled setting are like, wait a minute, we both understand that within this book is like some erotica that can be very furtively obtained from this one specific bookshop means that we understand that we're both sort of like part of the same community and have navigated the world in the same secret way. But there is sort of a bit earlier on where Edwin's ex, who is terrible yet intriguing, and I really hope is the protagonist of the third book, makes an allusion to their past relationship. And Robin's like, hmm, hmm, noted, and then continues on. But like they as characters really have to build up this trust between them because it's not actually just like, aha, I checked his Instagram bio and he's got a gay flag in there. He must be gay. It's more like, this is 1908 and we must be furtive and secret and also learn to emotionally trust each other before our relationship goes any further. 
And also they're all being chased around England being cursed and investigating murder. So there's that whole problem at the, at the same time. I really do want to know how much research this author did uh, on Edwardian era erotica because like I am certain that she must have had to do some amount of research on it. I'm just like really curious about that now actually. Maybe. I'm sure that's a thing you could research even though a lot of historical sources are harder to find. Anyway, I also appreciated that hanging out in libraries was a central part of the romance because I hang out in libraries a lot and I think they're cool. I have no nuanced thoughts on that. I just like libraries. I would say there are like a couple moments where the genre mashup of this didn't totally work for me pacing wise. Like I think honestly the part where they're hanging out at Edwin's house while the other party guests are just being terrible. I think it dragged a little bit for a mystery because it's really a time when you get insight into the characters as opposed to like propelling the plot forward. So I think as a character moment that comes in the building of their romance, it makes sense because Robin is being exposed to Edwin's family and being like, oh, this is why he is the way he is. And sort of beginning to understand that Edwin has been very much shaped by being mistreated and neglected by people in his family but as a mystery reader I was like raring to go and I was like get out of the house party I want to know who died and why yeah I was like I want to know why Reginald was murdered get get on with it and uh also Edwin's family is horrible and so I just wanted them to like stand up at the dinner table like punch his brother in the face and then leave so we need like a Black Sails season two episode five moment where Robin tells Edwin's family to leave their own dinner party. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm sorry, that's Black a- Sales, an iconic piece of media, always will be. That's a reference you will only understand if you've seen a very specific pirate show. I think there was one moment where I thought the genre mashup actually worked really well. And that was the bit where Edwin and Robin break up, which makes me sound a little bad saying that way. But like the thing is that um, most romance novels have a third act breakup between the couples because they'll get together there'll be some kind of conflict that splits them apart and then they will reunite at like the very end of the book in like a big grand romantic gesture and I I don't read like romance all the time but I read the occasional romance novel so I'm pretty familiar with that as a genre convention but I do find it often a little bit tiring because sometimes it seems like the issue could just be something the characters could talk about instead of like breaking up even though I do know that because they're relationship is the whole plot of a romance novel you do need to have like and everything is lost and we must despair moment before you can sort of solve things but I often just get a little bit tired of it because I'm like you're adults talk to each other but I thought it worked well in a marvelous light because there are other stressors on the relationship besides just their personal issues like these secrets about magic that they're holding Robin being cursed murder the fact that they've been kind of like running around England trying to break a curse and investigate why someone was killed and like I think it eventually catches up to them and there's kind of a moment where they have a bit of a breakup. And I actually thought that worked kind of well because in a normal romance novel, the main thing propelling the plot forward is just the development of the relationship. So then sometimes it feels like a little contrived when the characters break up. But I thought in a marvelous light, it actually worked well because there are other factors that are causing them to be stressed and feel like they can't be together. So at that part, I was kind of being a little evil and being like rubbing my hands together like, ha ha, yes, they're breaking up, they're breaking up which makes me sound a little evil, but like it was just very well done. So I enjoyed it. No, yeah, I totally agree with that. I also read the occasional romance novel. And so I'm aware that unless you've got like a Pride and Prejudice kind of set up where they don't get together until the very end, a third act breakup is basically inevitable, but they can sometimes be kind of hit or miss with me. Like sometimes they're like, we both have legitimate self-esteem issues from our last relationship that need to be discussed before we move in and sometimes we're like I saw you getting coffee with this woman I thought you were dating but she's actually your co-worker and I didn't bother to ask and then we broke up uh, which is 
not something that I've read exactly, but like I've read things similar to that. And so sometimes three deck breakups don't feel like they're really earned. But in this case, Edwin and Robin have a lot going on. Like even besides the fact that they have to be really secretive about their sexualities, they've got like this curse and the murder mystery and their various family issues. And the fact that this is like uncovering a whole conspiracy. So they've got like a lot going on and it feels very earned and realistic to both the characters that at a certain point they're just like I, I can't do this at the same time that we're trying to solve this murder like I, I do not have time to do this relationship and like my issues have just like come to the surface and so they break up and so it actually did feel like a very like natural progression of the characters that was earned by what we know about them and the situations they're in as well as causing more conflict in the book because like you're like no you got to solve the murder and to solve the murder you have to stay together but you're going to break up but I know why you're breaking up so like both the plots like all of the plots of the genre mashup are impacted by this breakup which is why I thought it worked so well as a plot point. I think another convention of romance novels that I noticed in this was the way that it was very much setting up second installments because a lot of romance novel series will follow different couples in each book. So for instance, uh, Tolly Hibbert's Brown Sisters series, which is a contemporary romance novel series that I really enjoy, follows three sisters over three books. And that means you have to tease future protagonists in early installments to get the reader interested. So in the first Brown Sisters book, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, you meet one of her sisters who's the protagonist of the second book. And you might be like, oh, she seems interesting. I'll tune in for her romance. And then in the second one, you get hints about who's going to be the third protagonist and so on, because that way it keeps you invested, even if there isn't like an overarching plot across the three books. And I think this book very much followed that convention of like giving hints as to who the future protagonist will be, because there's going to be an overarching plot about magic in England and conspiracies and murder. But I think each book is going to have a different protagonist. So the author has to kind of hint at that in the first book to get you interested. So that means that there's basically a scene where Edwin's ex turns up to basically go, hi, I'm the designated protagonist of a future book and I have a sad backstory that you can learn more about later when it's my turn to have a book and then dipped. And I don't say that as a problem. It's just funny how plainly it was like a result of mashing up genres because I think a lot of fantasy series tend to just follow the same protagonist from book to book because you have one plot and one character and one arc and they're more integral to that. But like with romance novel series, because the focus tends to just be the building of an individual relationship and these character arcs coming together, you don't necessarily do that across multiple books because like you've ideally solved their interpersonal issues by the end of book one and they're living happily ever after. And you don't want to just like ruin all of that in book two. So you instead you set up a different couple. So like the protagonist of the second book of this series is going to be Robin's younger sister and someone that we have yet to meet, presumably. So I just thought it was a little funny that Hawthorne turned up at one point and was like, future protagonist alert, and then disappeared. That scene is especially funny to me because Robin and Edwin go to Lord Hawthorne for like some advice and some knowledge and he provides them absolutely nothing useful. And so the scene like mostly exists as the way for you to be like, man, this Hawthorne man seems intriguing and very sad. I think he should get a love interest who like, he reveals his sad backstory too. Um, but it also, yeah, you're correct. And I think most fantasy novels do tend to follow one character or an ensemble cast. And in this case, it does very much feel like by the end of the book Edwin and Robin have like resolved their issues and they solved like their section of the plot but there is very much like this whole conspiracy that's been introduced that has to be resolved in the other books and presumably 
each protagonist of the other two books will get their own plot and their own love interest and eventually they'll all kind of like tie together into an overall story that nonetheless has like three separate stories which I think is quite a good way of matching up the genre because like Robin and Edmund have resolved their part of the plot but clearly like Maud, Robin's sister is about to get involved in something else so it just seems like a good way to combine the element of like these continuing mysteries that are part of a bigger conspiracy while having a different set of couples involved in each conspiracy. On the topic of broader conspiracies, I think there's a conspiracy afoot currently where there are going to be historical fantasy novels with headstrong young women named Maud that keep passing my path because I read A Marvelous Light and then like right after that I read The Drowned Country by Emily Tesh where there is also a headstrong young woman who like kind of shoulders her way into learning about the magical world and she's named Maud and Robin's younger sister is named Maud so I'm just like is this just the universal name right now like it's the it girl she is the moment etc <laughs> it's the mod conspiracy i'm quite excited for mod's book though she's very fun she is in the background for a lot of the book and only really in a few scenes but she clearly has a very strong personality and is super interested in learning more about magic so i think whatever her story is will be very fun i also am curious about the fairy stuff that's set up in this book which is very loosely alluded to that there used to be more human interaction with like fairyland and stuff like that. And I think it's not so much fairies like Tinkerbell fairies, it's like fairies like A Midsummer Night's Dream, like powerful, slightly capricious, like humanoid. I just think they're a neat part of mythology and I enjoy it when books have fairies in them. So I'm intrigued to see how that goes in future ones because at the start of Marvelous Light, it seems like it's been a really long time since anyone had concrete contact with the fairies and magic has been fading a little bit, but it seems like this is perhaps a Chekhov's gun for future books, so I will I will stay tuned. I'm also especially excited for the sequel because I have seen the author describe it as knives out on a boat with lesbians and magic, which is like some excellent things to combine. And I truly do not think you'd come up with a better pitch for a sequel if you tried. One thing that I did want more from this book was the Morrissey sisters because I thought they were really cool. Robin's typist, who is similar to Edwin, someone who is born to the magical world but doesn't have that much magic, is like you said, this cool British Indian woman who is very much aware of how like the deck is stacked against her in life, but it's like very smart and honestly possibly more put together than Robin and Edwin combined and has like a very cool sorceress sister who turns up in like the last third of the book and I thought they were really cool and I wanted way more of them so I don't know if they'll be in the sequel but I liked them and I like seeing how women with magic navigate historical worlds that still have like all the biases of real history so when I finished reading this book I was like man I wish there'd been more of the Morrissey sisters they seemed really cool even if this was just really Robin and Edwin's story and then I was like hang on a minute didn't I read a really good novel about a cool British Indian sorceress a couple years ago? I could reread that and it would scratch the itch. And that book was Sorcerer of the Crown by Zen Cho, which is the second book that we are talking about for this episode. It is a adult Regency fantasy novel that was published in 2015. And Zen Cho is one of our absolute favorite authors. Neither of us have read everything that she's published, but both of us have loved everything that she has. Like I've read her short stories. I've read some of her novels. I really liked both of them. I think she's just a fantastic and imaginative author and I love all of her stuff. 
And I read Sorcerer of the Crown a couple years ago, and I was like, let me just reread that real quick. And rereading it turned out to be a great idea because it, I think, pairs well with Marvelous Light in, in an interesting way. So we're going to talk about that for the second half of this episode. So Sorcerer of the Crown is about Zachariah's wife, the titular Sorcerer of the Crown, and it's set during the Regency area and the Napoleonic Wars. And similar to Marvelous Light, it's about how there is magic integrated in history, but in this case, it's like broadly known as opposed to being in secret little magician communities. Zacharias is a very controversial figure in the universe of Sorcerer of the Crown, because even though he was raised as the adoptive son of the previous Sorcerer of the Crown, he is a black man who was enslaved as a child. And certain people, namely white aristocratic magicians, really don't like that he was just appointed to the most powerful position in England, magically speaking. Zacharias would really like to just deal with the problem of England's disappearing magic and its faltering connection to fairyland and not have to deal with other stuff. But unfortunately, he also has to deal with like a lot of racist sorcerers plotting against him and trying to assassinate him. I think he's a really sympathetic protagonist right off the bat because he's just shouldering an incredible amount of responsibility at a young age while having to contend with awful racists and grieving the recent death of the man who raised him and taught him magic. The other protagonist of Sorcerer to the Crown, who I absolutely adore as well, is Prunella Gentleman, a young orphaned lady of uncertain background and parentage who works at a school teaching upper girls to suppress their magic. Part of the reason that me and Lulu both wanted to reread Sorcerer to the Crown after reading A Marvelous Light is that we wanted more of the cool British Indian sorceresses who were a bit in that book. And Prunella is in fact a British Indian sorceress and she's very cool and kind of like pragmatic and a little bit ambitious and very funny. And I just think she's pretty great. So Zacharias meets her when he is sent to this school to give a speech and is kind of horrified to learn that rather than teaching these women to use their magic, they're in fact being taught how to suppress their magic. And so in this world, like women and men both innately have magic and Prunella uses it for things like cooking and soothing younger girls at school to sleep and cleaning up messes, but women are told to suppress it if they want to be seen as eligible for marriage. So this isn't a school so much as like and a place to enforce rules about how women should behave. And so when Zacharias arrives at the school and is justifiably kind of horrified to see women being treated this way because he's uh, kind of used to the idea that like certain groups of people are said that they can't practice magic because it was believed that like he could not practice magic as a black man and he obviously proved everyone wrong. And so he's horrified at the idea of like this whole other group of oppressed people not being able to learn magic. And so after he arrives at the school, Prunella decides to run away from it, where she, even though she's lived her whole life there because she has essentially worked as an unpaid maid and governess and is just kind of fed up with it. And so she strikes a bargain with Zacharias that he will teach her magic and help her largely reform the way that women's magic is treated while also helping launch her into society and help her kind of like gain a wealthy husband and establish a life for herself that is not working as an unpaid governess. I think they work really well as protagonists to complement each other because they're both young people with magic despite being from groups that are traditionally denied power, both of the magical and the societal, because Zacharias is black and Prunella is a woman with mixed race ancestry. We later learn that her aristocratic father is white and her mother was from India. And Zacharias is kind of overwhelmed by his new responsibility, whereas Prunella desperately wants to prove herself and move up in the world and grasp at power in any way possible. Prunella, it turns out, has really strong magic despite not really being taught it. 
And her mother's side of the family also had pretty strong magic, which is where she gets it from. And she's very headstrong and ambitious. And she really just wants to get out of the school where she's lived her entire life and get power in society and marry well, especially to a husband who will just let her do whatever she wants. And that includes like reforming the entire way that women's magic is like approached and taught about because she just kind of wants power in any way. She's definitely like ruthless and ambitious and unapologetic about it. Whereas Zacharias just kind of wants to get his job done and honestly would probably be fine living a quiet life. And they, I think they kind of complement each other in that way and that they have faced similar societal struggles, but that sort of turned them into two different people. I did really like that Prunella is the one who's really ruthless and ambitious and Zacharias is the one who is just kind of like nice and wants to resolve things peacefully and live a quiet life because I think there's kind of this idea that like women shouldn't be ambitious and men should be ambitious and Zacharias is just like oh my god can I just do my job and Prunella's like I want to be rich and respected and I just thought that was kind of a fun swap of like the way that a lot of uh, male and female characters are written because there are so many ambitious male characters uh, and I feel like a lot of female characters in media are kind of like punished for wanting to be ambitious or like wanting things for themselves. But in this case, the nerd is kind of like, no, yeah, Prunella is totally justified in wanting a better life for herself, just as Zacharias is very justified in just wanting to do his duty and live his life and not be bothered by all these people trying to overthrow him. So they're very different characters. And I kind of thought that their two motives work together really well. And I also just enjoyed the way that they interact as well. It's very funny. Like I said, I think they play well off of each other in this book. And they end up joining forces, not just to train Prunella and introduce her into society, but also to figure out what is happening to England's magic and why it's vanishing. And also to stop a conspiracy among the magicians of England to install another sorcerer to the crown. Because even though Zacharias has been rightfully accepted by like the magical legacy of the Sorcerer Royale, there's a conspiracy that he murdered Sir Stephen, his guardian and the former sorcerer to take on his role. And he has to face down terrible racist magicians who blame him for England's fading magic and want to replace him from someone um, from a white aristocratic family. Even though Zacharias is like really just doing his best, he's not having a good time in this book. Yeah, but happily Prunella is there to kind of like forcibly stop assassination attempts and like help and like make sure that there's someone on Zacharias' side who's going to help him. I thought they made a really good pair because Zacharias kind of has like the knowledge and Prunella has like the boldness. And so together they make like a really good pair to fight against conspiracies and racist magicians. And they also fall in love because this is romance as well as fantasy. I thought that romance was really good. It's much more understated than A Marvelous Light, mostly because they don't really get together until much further into the book and they don't even realize they have feelings for each other until quite far into the book, but also because this book is kind of written in the style of a Regency novel, whereas A Marvelous Light is a little bit more modern. This has like kind of like very flowery language and the characters are like quite proper about their feelings. So like Zacharias is like, I couldn't possibly like Prunella. We're like just friends and it would be inappropriate for me to like her but also she's really cool. I think it's good to mention the style of this book because it is quite different from A Marvelous Light. A Marvelous Light is set historically and I think the language and the dialogue does reflect that but Zencho really goes all in on this book making it sound like it was not only set during the Regency period but also like written during it. I think if you've read stuff like Austen it 
really emulates that type of language. Characters don't necessarily say what they mean. There's like a lot of like very polite, but sort of maybe undercutting political maneuvering among the magicians, but also even like the very narration of it very much reads historically. I think it is the kind of thing that like is not as easy to read, but is very rewarding because it just feels very immersive. Like you're not just looking through a little window at the Napoleonic era, England, but there's magic. Like your brain is really submerged in the language of it. Again, I'm going to bring up Jonathan Strange and Mr. Doyle, despite not having read it. I think that similarly does a thing where it very much emulates the linguistic style of the time period it's writing about, which I think takes some real dedication. Like I have written some historical fiction and it's really hard to adjust your speech patterns to sound like it's from another century, but this like convincingly did sound like that. Sometimes I read books and I'm like, you sound like you could be a modern day person. You're just wearing old fashioned clothing and pretending that you're from historical Greece or something. But this one is very convincing in that it reads very much like it was written during the Regency era and characters talk like it. And I think it definitely does take a little bit more effort to read, but like that doesn't mean that it's bad. I think it just means that you really have to dig into the language of it and get used to the rhythm of it. Like I think the first couple chapters, you're kind of like, this is different from other fantasy novels I might pick up off the shelf. But like once you kind of get into the rhythm of it, it feels much more natural. I always have that feeling whenever I'm reading historical literature, like at the start, you're kind of like, this is different from like the language I usually read in fiction. But then once you get into it, you're like, it's easy. It's like swimming. You're like, I am in the language. I understand it. I'm doing backflips. I'm diving. <laughs> As our resident have actually read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, uh, this is very much written in kind of the similar vein of that in that it's exactly like a historical fiction novel down to the way that the characters talk and the way that they behave, but there just like is a little bit of magic integrated in there. I thought it worked very well. It, it's definitely a different style than a lot of other fantasy books, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily hard to read. It has this like really funny kind of like sly wit where the characters are like subtly like kind of like rude to each other. And, like the insults are like very cutting in like a clever way. And it's just like enjoyable to read. Like it's not at all. I personally didn't find it a slog. I've read historical fiction novels where they're trying so hard to emulate the way people actually acted back then that it's just like a pain to read but this is really fun and delightful it's it feels very easy to read even if it is emulating a historical style also maybe think maybe I should write more books in this style because instead of having to write kissing scenes you can just write something like and then past a pleasant few minutes in which their mouths were too occupied for words and then just go on from that it is funny to think about this in contrast to A Marvelous Light which very much leans towards the romance side of things in how much like detail you get of the characters falling in love, so speak. Uh, like that one- It means they're really explicit sex scenes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I read romance novels, so I wasn't like a stranger to that. Whereas Sorcerer of the Crown is like, these characters are dancing around each other for quite a while and not quite acknowledging that they have feelings. And then they kiss, but it's like lightly alluded to. And then the novel ends. Like there is actually kind of a fun subplot where Zacharias is trying to find Prunella a suitable husband because she literally just wants to marry someone who is rich and will let her do what she wants and like actually prioritizes that above learning magic and stuff because she's like, listen, magic has not gotten me anything good in my life. It's just like been something I have to repress that I'm told that makes me not like an ideal uh, candidate for marriage, which means I'm just gonna be stuck as a governess forever. Like magic has done nothing for me. I just want a rich husband who will let me walk all over him. 
Uh, and Zacharias is like, okay, like I will teach you magic and we'll start reforming how we teach women's magic and stuff. But I will also try to help you get a husband. So I'm going to introduce you to society. You're going to wear like fancy dresses and go to balls and stuff. But Zacharias is like very taken with Prunella and is like subtly pining for her like the entire time the book is happening, which I just thought was quite fun. It's sort of like a subversion of the like, I mean, it, it's sort of like that trope where like a character is like helping someone else woo someone, but then it falls in love with them, but like cutting out the middleman, like Zacharias is helping Prunella find a suitable husband, but he's kind of like, oh, I mean, what about me over there in the corner? I thought it was really nice. I also thought that Prunella's goal of finding a husband was very historically accurate because like you said sometimes you can read historical fiction novels and the characters in them just don't read like they're from that time period they're like you'll be reading a book set in like 1845 and the main character like papa I do not wish to marry I wish to become an independent reporter and I'm like I mean like I guess but like a lot of women back then did marry like it's not like you, you can't write a character in like 1813 and have them think like a character from 2022. And Prunella is somewhat forward thinking in that she wants to learn how to use her magic and she has absolutely no intention of like being submissive to her husband. She just wants someone who can provide for her. But I did really like that she was practical enough to realize that if she wanted to get by in life, she would have to marry into money because she did not have really any means of acquiring money on her own. So I just really appreciate that because sometimes you read a historical fiction novel and you're just like, did they just time travel back from modern times into the past? No one in this book is behaving like they actually would back then. But this very much does feel like a Regency novel in which characters have like historically appropriate reactions to things and like they want things that characters back then would actually want. Right, like I think it's a good example of having a character with feminist ideals that also fits into the understanding of the time period. Like Pride and Prejudice is a feminist novel and Lizzie Bennett isn't like, I will throw off the shackles of matrimony and become an independent woman and start my own small business. It's like she lives within the confines of society where she needs to get a husband, but also like she doesn't want to marry someone that she doesn't love, but like she does understand that marriage is an important part of what it means to like live a happy and successful life as a woman, which is why she wants her sister to marry well. So I think this book does a good job of like looking at what feminist characters were like in historical texts and being like, I want Prunella to embody feminist ideals and be a woman who has ambitions and won't be limited to expectations of her to just like be quiet and suppress herself and do nothing but like put her head down and work quietly. Like Prunella has ambitions, but to me, they feel like they are realistic ambitions for a character from that time period who is shaped by the way that a woman can access power. Like Prunella kind of already has a bunch of strikes against her in the eyes of society. She's not white. She wasn't raised in like upper-class society. She isn't like highly educated or like societally refined because she basically grew up in like a boarding school. But Prunella's like, I could get a husband and via having the security of a husband, I could then live my life and be powerful. So I, I don't know, we've talked about this for quite a lot, but like, I think it's a smart way for Prunella to understand how she fits into society, but also still want more power than is generally given to someone like her. That was a good way of putting it. And I don't think I have anything else to add, honestly. Do you want to talk about how it's not like Jonathan's Ranger, Mr. Norrell? Oh, yes. So we have talked about how this book compares to Jonathan's Ranger, Mr. Norrell, which I think is a reasonable comparison. But I think that this novel is 
different from it in a very important way in that it actually centers characters of color and it interrogates historical racism, colonialism, and sexism in the way that a lot of other historical fantasy novels or just like historical fiction in general doesn't always do because Prunella and Zacharias are both people of color in historical England and in a time when most sorcerers were rich white men. And so the prejudices that they face are very much present and interrogated. I wouldn't say this book is heavy or depressing because like it is just kind of like a delight to read because it's so fun, but it also does not shy away from the reality of England's history of racism and colonialism. This book is very clear that people do not want Zacharias to be Sorcerer of the Crown because he is black and they're quite clear that they don't think Prunella is a proper lady because she's mixed race and her mother was from India. And like, this is not something that is shied away from in the book. There are realistic barriers that the novel acknowledges people of color in historical England would have had to face back then. They're kind of both outcasts from white aristocratic society, but in slightly different ways. Uh, Zacharias, because he's black and he doesn't come from an aristocratic family, because he was born into slavery and then freed and then adopted by the wives. And Prunella, because she's a woman and she's not white on her mother's side of the family, but her father was a, a white aristocrat and his legacy has kind of given her at least some certainty for the early part of her life. So they face slightly different prejudice and barriers to power, especially because Zacharias has like literally been rocketed to like the most powerful position that a magician can hold in England. Whereas Prunella is like, still scrabbling to hold on to her magic. But I think part of the reason that this book really stands out from other historical novels is that it really looks at the fact that English power was built on colonialism and racism and that there were always people who were excluded from that kind of power. And I think it kind of like takes the fantasy of like upper class British society where people are introduced to balls and like there's courtship and stuff and like very much looks it in the eye and points out that there's like people who were always excluded from that kind of society. So I think it was just kind of satisfying to read because it is interrogating an aspect of history that was not interrogated like in novels written in historical times, but like looking back on it with a modern view, it can be like, yeah, Prunella and Zacharias face these barriers that is bad. And like, they are trying to grab onto power that society will not let them because like, England as a whole is just an evil colonial force. Yeah, and it's like, I love reading this book because it's really fun. And I really think the two characters are enjoyable to read about and well-rounded. But I also think that one of the reasons why I find this book so memorable is that it's a Regency fantasy romance that stars two characters of color. And it does kind of realistically show that England was like a bad colonial force in the world. And like, there were barriers to people like Zacharias and Prunella being part of upper-class English society and it's not like it doesn't have a sad ending the characters are not like cast out of society Zacharias doesn't lose his position Prunella does not like fail in her goals but it does like acknowledge that like these are the barriers the characters would face and like England is super racist and always has been and it's I just really appreciated that I think there can be there can be benefits to writing like a book starring two characters of color where they fall in love and they don't face racism but I think because this is a is a historical fantasy novel Zen Cho really uses that to like kind of interrogate the history of British colonialism especially in India in a way that I thought was really interesting because we later learn in the book that Prunella's mom was not only an Indian sorceress but one that her 
uh, white father essentially seduced in order to try to steal her magic in like what is a very like clear parallel to like real colonial stuff that happened like just because he's trying to steal magic does not mean that it doesn't have real parallels to history and so I just thought it was interesting that this book uses fantasy to kind of also explore real world issues and the history of the British Empire like I've read books in my classes on like Victorian literature that are about racism but they don't really acknowledge it through the point of view of the characters that were affected by it they're just like ah yes British colonies existed we're gonna briefly mention them and not like anything else about them whereas this book is kind of about like how characters who are affected by British colonialism nonetheless kind of try to like live their lives and like destroy the barriers that would keep them away from the lives they want. I also think it's interesting that even though this book is set in England and very much is about the experience of people of color in England, there is also kind of a subplot that deals with magic outside of Europe because there are some Malaysian witches who have been in conflict with the ruling power in Malaysia and they have come, like the ruling power in Malaysia that is, have come to England in search of like some backup help. And Prunella sort of gets a model of another way that it is you can be a woman with magic through one of the characters of these Malaysian witches, which I thought was kind of fun because it's like Prunella and Zacharias aren't just completely outcasts in white British society. They also have like some connections to a world a bit beyond colonized British colonies and stuff like that. So I thought it was neat that Zencho, who is Malaysian, works in a little bit of Malaysian magic and um, Malaysian witches and Malaysian folklore into this book, even though it is very firmly set in England, especially it was just fun to see Prunella sort of be taken under the wing of an older sorceress who like teaches her some magic and gives her some hints about what it means to be a woman with power. Yeah, I thought the Malaysian witches were really fun. It was cool to kind of see another way of doing magic in this world because in England, women are expected to suppress their magic and be perfect wives and daughters. And in Malaysia, these witches are like, it's basically like a matriarchy and these witches are very well respected. And so it was just fun to read about these female characters who actually have a lot of power and like know their own worth and are respected by other characters. And it's especially fun to see Prunella interact with them because she's like, oh yeah, like I, I, I am able to understand my own worth even more through being tutored by these women and being told that I'm very powerful and I deserve to like seize onto my power and learn as much as possible. It's really, it was just very fun. And to make matters even better, there's a companion novel to this book called The True Queen, which I have read and Lulu hasn't, and takes place in the same world with some of the same characters, but stars a Malaysian protagonist and has a lot to do with Malaysian magic and history. So I was really happy when I read that because the Malaysian witches were my favorite subplot of this book, and I was really glad there's an entire book about them. I definitely need to go read The True Queen after I read this. I think now that we've talked a little bit about that specific aspect of magic in the book, we should maybe talk a little bit more about the broader portrayal of magic in Sorcerer of the Crown, which is that unlike in A Marvelous Light, it's a completely accepted part of the world and it has been for many, many years. And it was a little bit fun to read about rich, repressed British people having to deal with the absolute bizarreness of magic just like catapulting through their lives and causing chaos because mm -hmm. they flip in like bizarre magic, like dragons and giant mermaids and magical 
tempests and stuff in like among these real life dynamics of class and power in tea parties and debutante balls. Very funny. They're just like, I say, was that a dragon? Old chap, can you do the spell where you like the candles on fire? It's just very funny. I really loved how these characters are trying to like be proper and fit into society and like all this weird magic is happening around them that regular people don't really know how to deal with. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy reading a book where magic is an integrated part of the world because magical society is like an accepted part of British society but everyone but like it hasn't changed the course of English history so everyone still kind of regards magic as a little bit bizarre straight and sometimes and when like it interrupts scenes it's always very funny to try to see how people deal with it. Magic used to be a lot more powerful in the history of this book but kind of by the time the start of Sorcerer of the Crown rolls around it's faded a lot. England's connection to fairyland, which is where a lot of the magic has come, has pretty much been severed. And being a magician is kind of treated more like being an academic in a really weird niche subject or a member of a really exclusive gentleman's club. And it's kind of seen as something that's non-magicians kind of see it as something that's more appropriate for a third son, which is funny to me because instead of just being like, oh my God, the magicians are all powerful. We bow down to them. They are almighty and we thank them for their power. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, I mean, Rollo's off there looking at some magical texts, but like he's just doing his thing, I guess. Have a good time, Rollo. And it's just sort of funny that it's just treated as like a very mundane thing to the point that many people think it's kind of useless. Yeah, I thought that was also fun. There's a lot of different ways that people can be magic users in this book as well. There's hedge witches, thaumaturges, magicians, sorcerers, lots of other words. Sorcerers are specifically people like Zacharias who have a magical familiar. And it's kind of fun. It also interrogates class and magic a bit and like the way that it's totally acceptable for women of lower classes to use magic as long as it's in some way benefiting the upper classes like no one's gonna complain if your maid uses magic to heat your water faster but like god forbid like an upper class woman uses magic to keep her hair up and so there's kind of this fun way of inter of like integrating magic into the society which i thought felt very real because if characters do think that magic is really weird but also useful they would therefore develop certain circumstances under which they would find it acceptable and not acceptable to use it it's also just funny to like read these scenes of these magicians like sitting around talking like they're a member of like some weird exclusive club even though they make deals with fairyland and like talk to dragons regularly on the topic of familiars that is also very important to the magic in this book which is that to be a sorcerer, which is like the specifically most highest category of magic user, I guess, to be a sorcerer like Zacharias means that you have magic, but also that you have a magical companion known as a familiar who kind of ties you more strongly to fairyland, which is where most magic really originates. But one of the issues that Zacharias has been facing is that Sir Stephen's familiar, Leo Frick, has just been mysteriously missing ever since the previous sorcerer royale died. So even though he has the magical trappings of the Sorcerer Royale rank, like he's been chosen by the magical staff and stuff, he just doesn't have a familiar and his enemies use that against him to show that like he shouldn't really belong. He came to this position by malicious means and surely they should just put someone who's more suitable into the role, even though Zacharias is really just trying his best and not malicious at all. And the Magical connection between England and Fairyland has also been fading for much, much longer than Zacharias has been Sorcerer Royal, but people also like to blame him for that because he just got, gets a lot of stuff he does not deserve in this book. And I am truly just team 
let Zacharias have a nice day because this man just deals with so much in this book. But yeah, there's sort of an extra category, which is that you can be a magician or a thaumaturge or a heads witch, but a sorcerer is distinguished by having a magical familiar. But Zacharias, who's supposed to be the most sorcerer-y, sorcerer to sorcerer in the land, doesn't have a familiar, which raises some questions like, where did his familiar go? And what exactly happened the night that Sir Stephen died? Yeah, there's a bit of a mystery that kind of unspools over the course of the book, which is like what really happened when Zacharias became Sorcerer to the Crown. And there's also the mystery of what happened to England's magic. And I thought these were teased out in like very interesting and readable ways. I also really enjoyed the sections of this book where they do intersect with fairyland because there's a lot more presences of fairies in this book than there is in A Marvelous Light. And they're just super weird they are kind of like a midsummer's night dream fairies like lulu said and they're just very weird they don't really know how to deal with humans they find british society kind of baffling but humans find them also kind of baffling so anytime zacharias has to like go talk to the king of fairyland it's always very entertaining and it kind of gives you some more hints about like why is magic disappearing like can they ever bring it back so i just enjoyed whenever they went to fairyland it was always very fun also this is not on the topic of fairyland but we can get back to that One thing that I was just thinking about when I was preparing for this episode and stuff is how Zacharias's position in this book kind of reminded me a little bit of Jordan from The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo, which we discussed in episode 12 a while ago, because um, Jordan is adopted slash maybe stolen from Vietnam and has this kind of like paper cutting magic and is basically kept as like kind of an exotic, interesting little novelty among her white family and society and obviously grows up with tons of issues like that because she's been separated from her birth family and birth culture and raised by people who don't really see her as a person and see her more as like a novelty and I think Zacharias is in a bit of a similar situation because he's a person of color who was taken from his birth family and raised by a white family and has had no further contact with his biological family since then And when he was a kid, people kind of viewed him as a novelty or an experiment, like, oh, Sir Stephen is attempting to teach a little black boy magic. Ha ha, I wonder if that will succeed. But like now that he's holding the most powerful magical position in England, he's seen as a threat to the point where his actual life is in danger and people have like this giant conspiracy to overthrow him. But he's also been hiding an actual secret since Sir Stephen's death, which is not that he killed Sir Stephen, but that he's being haunted by the ghost of his former mentor slash adopted father, who's basically been watching his every move and judging him and offering unsolicited advice, which sounds extremely stressful. And personally, not, not another thing he should have to deal with, the poor man. Zacharias goes through so much in this book. At a certain point, I was just like, this man needs a nap. He needs a very long nap. But luckily he has Prunella in his corner and she is quite... Uh, she is willing to quite literally fight people who are trying to take down Zacharias. So they make a good pair. Prunella also innately was born with magic. Unlike Zacharias, she was never taken in and properly trained as a child. She was actually supposedly taught to suppress her magic, but she was like, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. So she is quite powerful and knows how to do a lot of stuff, but she's way more slapdash and less academic about it than he is. She's basically self-taught. So she's quite powerful. And a lot of times Zacharias is like, how are you doing that? I don't understand how you learned to do that. And I was just like, oh, I taught myself. Like, it's hard, really? You think that's hard? Uh, but it's fun to see these very different styles where Zacharias is extremely precise. And Bruno's just like, well, I kind of 
want it to happen, so it's gonna happen now. Prunella literally is just that legally blonde bit that's like, what? Like, it's hard? <laughs> I love Prunella. What makes her really strong, though, is discovering that her mother actually left a magical legacy for her, which includes a cache of familiar eggs that she hatches, and they, like, prove to be the source of her power, because having one familiar makes you a sorcerer, having three makes you unprecedentedly powerful. So this is actually an interesting parallel to me to a book that I was reading in one of my classes at the time, because I was reading this book at the same time that I was reading The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which is also a book about someone going to India and stealing a rock that may or may not be magical. But in this case, it's kind of like all about the white family that stole it. And in this case, it's about Prunella kind of reclaiming the legacy that her father stole from her mother, but which is nonetheless like something that can only be inherited by her. So she has these three familiars and that automatically makes her extremely powerful and like super unprecedented and one of the only sorcerers in England who has a familiar. And it's just kind of fun to see a female character who's like so incredibly powerful that the men can't do anything about it even though they want to. Agreed. I also think it's fun that Prunella's power comes from the side of her family that people want her to forget about because her father is white and he's aristocratic and he's British and her early childhood was kind of secured by the legacy that he left her when he died and she doesn't know anything about her mother's side of the family at the start of the book but that's kind of like what people view as the bad side of her family they're like we don't know who her mother was but she wasn't white and British so we look down on that side of her family but in the end, like the thing that kind of gets Prunella excluded from air quotes, proper society is the thing that gives her her power because only she can access this power from her mother's side of the family because it's like a spell that's literally tied to her blood. So it's kind of like the very thing that society rejects her for is the thing that gives her her power because she has this whole magical legacy that has nothing to do with like stuffy British magicians even though they did kind of covet that power and the fact that she is the only one who can master that and like draws on the side of the family that she's been forcibly separated from for most of her life is ultimately the thing that makes her such a powerful sorceress. So it's like a very cool subversion of like at the start of the book, people only care about her father and they wanted to suppress her magic, but in the end, like embracing her magic and learning about her mother's side of the family is like what brings her power. It's a really great plot line. There's a part at the very end of the book, well, pretty close to the end of the book at least, where Prunella hears a magical message from her mom that's like, I know you'll be powerful because you're my daughter. And I just thought that was a really great moment. I think it also works well in the way that it parallels Zacharias because I think their relationship is underscored by the fact that both of them know what it's like to be outsiders because of their race, but also both of them know what it's like to be disconnected from your birth family and to be kind of the only person of color in a very white world. So Prunella grew up never knowing her mother and also knew very little of her father. And meanwhile, Zacharias was taken from his family when he was just a kid by Sir Stephen and doesn't know what happened to his birth family at all. And there's this really heartbreaking bit where Prunella asks Zacharias why Sir Stephen didn't free his parents from slavery. And he's just like, well, I guess Sir Stephen didn't see the same aptitude for magic in them which is just genuinely so heartbreaking. It's like Sir Stephen does come to care about Zacharias and he's like, I think of you as a son and he does treat Zacharias better than like a lot of racist British society, but also he didn't care about Zacharias's family and in his way was like still blinded by being a white British guy with power. And it's just like such a sad scene and there's really no resolution for it because 
sometimes like these bad things that happen to characters that are because of this like engine of racism and colonialism and slavery like there's no way of defeating that like I like to think that maybe Zacharias will look for his family after the book ends because he's got magic at his disposal but he was like taken from them because Sir Stephen was just like oh I think this kid shows some promise for magic but I don't care about his family because I don't think they have power and I don't value them as people and it's just such a heartbreaking scene because Prunella gets this moment of like reclaiming her family legacy even though it has been kind of partially destroyed and she'll never be able to connect with her mother but Zacharias like will never have that because he was just taken from his family as a kid and even though in some ways maybe his life has been better than like it would be if he was still enslaved he still doesn't know anything that happened to his family and has like lived this incredibly disconnected life and it's just really sad and there's no resolution for it which makes sense because sometimes you can't resolve everything bad that happens to characters but it's like really one of the most powerful sad moments in this novel is Zacharias acknowledging that as much as he owes Sir Stephen a lot he also probably has very valid reasons to despise him. Yeah it reminded me a bit of a subplot that we talked about in our episode on historical murder mysteries and magic because one of the books we talked about has a subplot where the main character is trying to find her sister who was enslaved alongside her as a child and they're eventually separated and she's trying to find her and it kind of ties into like this real world history of like after the civil war sometimes people were able to find their loved ones and sometimes they weren't and I thought this was kind of similar because like a lot of the times people were separated like Sir Stephen and his wife like we see did genuinely care about Zacharias and like they couldn't have children of their own so they took him in and raised him as a son they also separated him from his family and like in a way did kind of see him as an experiment like they did love him and they're very proud of him but they're also like can we teach this black child to be a magician and like oh look the experiment was was a success so it's like one of the moments of the book where there like isn't a happy ending because there were so few happy endings when it came to stuff like historical slavery so I think essentially why both of us really like this book so much and why we both read it several times is that it's a fun fantasy romance novel but I think it also does a good job of engaging with real history and social commentary in ways that like feel meaningful and like I think this book engages with the history of British colonialism better than like some like actual historical fiction books that I've read that don't take place in a fantastical alternate reality with fairies and dragons which I just find very impressive. Agreed I think it very much looks at the fact that British society is built I mean it looks on the fact that historical British society is built on the suffering of people like Zacharias's family and Prunella's family, but also it is still kind of not a novel about suffering and pain. Like Prunella and Zacharias are allowed power and they're allowed a happy ending. And there is also just fun magical shenanigans like a fight between a dragon and a giant mermaid. But I think the heart of this book is really not looking away from like the horrors of British colonialism and the fact that Zacharias and Prunella do manage to carve out a niche for themselves and like a power and a happy ending, but that is kind of contrary to what general society wants for them. And I think it makes it a powerful novel because there is stuff like fairyland and magical staffs and dragons and bargains and all sorts of stuff that you might find in a traditional fantasy novel. But the heart of it is very much about like who is offered power in society 
and where does that power come from and how these are not like easy or nice answers to questions. So I just think it's like a very nuanced novel. And even though it, it came out, you know, a couple years ago, I still thought about it pretty frequently, which is why I'm glad that I reread it. Basically, Zen Cho writes very good books. Do we want to talk about some of the like very ending stuff? Like, what did we think about the twist that Zacharias has been hiding not only the secret about the ghosts, but also the secret that like the bargain that sorcerer royales make with their familiars is that they can eat their body when they die and that Zacharias didn't want Sir Stephen to be eaten by his familiar and was like, you can feed on my magical essence for the rest of my life if you leave Sir Stephen's body alone, which I think speaks a lot to what Zacharias is like as a character because I think he's gone through some pretty awful stuff in his life. And I think he has pretty good reasons not to like Sir Stephen, but he also like very selflessly offers himself up to save the body of a man who is dead and also wasn't like a perfect saint. And it, it does come out kind of like at the very end that this is exactly why Zacharias has been like internally having a really bad time, which is that his kind of magical essence and soul has been being eaten away by a dragon from Fairyland. But also I think it's very much about how he still feels like he owes Sir Stephen something even after Sir Stephen is like dead and Zacharias has taken over his position. So it was an interesting twist also because it has been so long since I first read this book that I had genuinely forgotten about that and I was kind of surprised what happened. Yeah, I had also totally forgotten about that. I do think it's an interesting twist. It is also a little bit funny in that Zacharias is discussing uh, with Prunella at some point earlier in the book about the fact that they about the fact that familiars eat the bodies of the people that they serve. And Prunella's like, oh yeah, me and my three familiars like already discussed this. One of them gets my head, one of them gets my feet, and then they can like fight over the rest of it. Which I feel like is just like a big contrast between Prunella and Zacharias' characters. I think what you say is that he does kind of feel like he owes Sir Stephen something and doesn't want this fate for his mentor, but he also does acknowledge when the secret comes out that like he was exceedingly in shock and like his mentor had just died and he wasn't really thinking straight. So it's kind of the classic twist on like the, you make an ill-advised magical bargain with a being of great power that like you think is a good idea at the time. And then you come to your senses later and it's like, oh my God, that was a horrible idea. Why did I do that? But it's too late to back out. Happily, this is resolved because Prunella kind of like grabs the dragon and like stop feeding off of Zacharias. Like that's incredibly rude and just like leave him alone. And then she feeds him one of her own familiars, which was a genuinely shocking moment that I had not remembered at all. Oh my God, I also forgot about that. And I was just kind of skating along, reading this book, being like, oh, I remember that part and that part. And I think I remember that part too. And like, oh yeah, this is mostly familiar because I didn't like forget everything about it. And then I got to that part and I was like, oh my God, I totally forgot that she fed one of her familiars to Leofric to save Zacharias's life. And she feeds her like elf familiar Nidget to Leofric and is like, instead of slowly eating away at Zacharias's magic and life force and eventually killing him, you can just have one of my familiars to eat right now and then just does it. And I think it's like pretty shocking, but also pretty exemplative of what Prunella is like as a character because you praise the fact that she is ambitious. And I do agree that it was refreshing to see just like a, an ambitious female character who is unapologetic about it and also not punished by the narrative for being ambitious. But I also think her being ruthless can kind of be her character flaw in some ways and that she acts- Oh, definitely. Like she acts very suddenly and very harshly in order to save Zacharias's life. 
Though I'm going to be honest, I also found Nidget like a little bit creepy because he ages like really fast and I found that a little creepy. But <laughs> he just kind of throws this creature that's dependent to her, even though it's magic and not like an actual baby, to Leofric. But I think it kind of is also a metaphor for the fact that she and Zacharias get their happy ending, but it's not without a cost. Like Prunella is not ever going to take another familiar and she has to kind of deal with that loss for the rest of her life because these characters are put in hard positions and have to make hard choices. But I definitely was kind of shocked by that because I'd completely forgotten about that part of the ending. Like there were definitely some things that I remembered, but somehow like the whole showdown with Leo Frick and how it concluded just had been wiped from my memory. So when Pernilla was just like, I know how to solve this and just throws the elf familiar at Leo Frick and he's just like, gulp. I was like, oh my God, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, so, it's definitely pretty shocking, but it's, I would say it is her flaw, but she also definitely does feel regret and grief over having done it. Like she thinks it was a necessary thing to do, but that doesn't mean that she was any happier about having done it. And then she and Zacharias do get to have a happy ending and she becomes Sorceress Royale because she is frankly a bit more suited to it than Zacharias is because she has a much more like uh, argumentative, like bossy personality than he does. And he kind of like retires to a garden and tries to like stop snails from eating his cabbages, which is very cute. I think Zacharias just deserves a rest after the events of this book. Well, Zencho clearly agrees because that's what he gets. I am excited to read the sequel because I know it's not about Prunella and Zacharias, but I think it will be interesting to see how Prunella navigates her power as Sorcerer to the Crown, especially because if people were pretty shocked that Zacharias was Sorcerer to the Crown, it's not like she's like, a less shocking person to take over the role. So I think it'll be interesting to see how her being in power kind of reshapes British magic. And also I think that it would just be nice to see Zacharias having a good time over there, a nice little subplot about his garden, not being eaten alive, not dealing with racism, just being like, I got my garden, got some slug problems, just chilling. I think that would be good for him. I mean, I read it. I thought it was good. It's also gay, which was nice. It was just like a fun book. There's a bit more about Fairyland, which I really liked because it was one of my favorite parts of the original book. So you should read it because we both like Zen Cho and I've read a book by her that you haven't and I want to talk to you about it at some point. I will read it at some point. I just have not had time. <laughs> it's interesting that we've done several historical fantasy novels for this podcast that kind of integrate magical elements into real world history instead of just straight up epic fantasy novels that are set in different worlds and have completely original histories and stuff. Because I think I did read a lot of that growing up and I still do enjoy epic fantasy, but I think it makes sense that both of us are kind of drawn to historical fantasy lately because I definitely study a lot of history in college and I think understanding history is important, but also it is really interesting to see people take real history and real experiences and turn it just a little bit to the left and inject it with some magic. And I think it's been fun to talk about these for the podcast because there's really some layers in the way that magic parallels or contrasts the character's experiences or the world that they're inhabiting. So I think it's been fun. I wouldn't be surprised if we did more episodes on historical magic in the future. Me neither. I have really enjoyed talking about our historical fantasy books. And I would definitely be down for talking about more in the future. I also really enjoyed the way that real history and magic intertwine both these books like the fact that they're in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars but it's still like regular people fighting regular wars because 
the French sorcerers and the British sorcerers have just like made a polite agreement not to get involved or like I'm sort of curious how the magical societies will get involved in like World War One in the Marvelous Light world like will they get involved I don't know if we'll ever see that but it's something that I did think about at least also I'm pleased that these were both historical fantasy novels because I am both an English student and a history student and I really need to do something with my classes on queer literature and history of British colonialism and I feel like talking about fantasy novels is a good way to combine those interests. You're just intersecting everything in your life for this one podcast episode. It's actually the most ambitious crossover in history, Avengers Endgame Who. Yeah, I'm just combining all of my classes into one podcast episode. I hope my professors are proud of me. I think my main takeaway from both of these books is that I am not entirely sure that I would take the trade of being inducted into a secret world of magic or whatever if it involved being like the subject of a really terrible magical curse. I'm just like, would you want that trade-off? Because I feel like based off of the experiences of Robin and Zacharias in these books, I might be like, you know, I'm, I'm good without magic actually. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I think the worst part of both of these books was the amount of bureaucracy that both the characters had to get involved in. That's true. There is one constant throughout life and history, and that is the evils of bureaucracy. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, and on Tumblr at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.tumblr.com. We also have a more general website, neverthetwinsshallmeet.com.